uh, our Lord and loving Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us grace so to hear your words and put them into practice that we would live new and changed lives to the glory of your name. Amen. Now, why did Jesus come? Why, why did Jesus come after all? What was he on earth to do? What did he think he was doing? Why did this relatively young man, I can say that as a man in his 40s, someone who's 33, seems pretty young to me, who had family responsibilities, no doubt, responsibilities to his mother and wider family, and the opportunity for an obscure and quiet life, uh, to learn a trade and uh, just go about his business quietly, why did he pop up into public and all of a sudden risk everything? Why did he risk everything? Why did he risk conflict? Why did he plunge himself into the mess that was first century uh, Judea? We are so used to seeing Jesus as a nice guy that I think sometimes we cannot understand the meaning and significance of his mission. It suits us for Jesus to be somewhat innocuous, to be a kind of greeting card Jesus, a great moralist who preached good family values, perhaps. What we want from him is a little bit of encouragement. We'd like a Jesus who kind of come up to us and perhaps endorse us, give us a kind of pat on the back, a little bit of a cuddle perhaps and say, you know, you're doing okay. In fact, you're okay and I'm okay with you being okay and that's okay. And I think we'd be okay with that. But Jesus is a much more disturbing and complicated figure than that. Jesus is far more irritating and at the same time compelling as a person. And if we can't see that, then in many ways we haven't really grasped him. If you come here every week and you feel comfortable with Jesus, I think sometime, I think perhaps you need to think whether you've really understood him. I hope he annoys you sometimes. Even if you're a committed Christian, I hope he annoys you sometimes. I was meeting up with a young woman who was taking her first steps as a Christian recently, and I asked her to go away and read the Gospel of Mark. And her response shocked me. She hadn't read the Gospels at all as an adult. And she said, she came back and she said to me, I found Jesus to be arrogant. I found Jesus to be arrogant. At first I was very disappointed because I'd wanted her to encounter Jesus as a convincing and compelling person. But I think she taught me something here. She's on to something. Jesus didn't leave his quiet home in Galilee to tell everyone that they were okay. The Son of God did not leave his home in heaven with a clipboard like some middle manager trying to give an encouragement assessment for his workers. Jesus' claim for himself and for his mission was much bigger than that. And if he's not right, then yes, it would be arrogant for an ordinary person to claim these things about himself. It's no surprise then that Jesus irritated and disturbed his contemporaries. As you've seen in Luke's gospel already, he's created a furor in his hometown by picking up the scroll from Isaiah. This is back in chapter 4. It's on the same page as the text that we had read for us from Luke's gospel. And, and reading the great text from Isaiah about the year of the Lord's favor. Do you remember that moment when he stands up and reads out, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he closes the scroll and 
sits down, which is in Judaism, you sit down to teach, and sits down to teach, and the only thing he says, and it was a short sermon, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. My goodness, what an astonishing claim. You know that Bible reading we just had? It's about me. What an extraordinary thing to say. And do you remember the reaction? There he is in his hometown. They said, isn't this Joseph's son? I tied his shoes when he tripped up when he was a little kid. How could it be possible? How could this possibly be Joseph's son now saying that he, in him, are all the promises of God fulfilled? How could he be saying that all that extraordinary hope and blessing that Isaiah preached 700 years ago and for which you've been praying and waiting and dreaming and longing all this time, it's here now in front of you fulfilled. It's me, he's saying. And no surprise, he got run out of town and had to escape from being chucked off a cliff. And pretty soon word about this new public figure got out, this provocateur, And it spread and came to the attention of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And before too long, there was inevitably going to be a showdown between these two groups, or between this person and between this group, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, of course, we're familiar with the Pharisees as well. If we're familiar with Jesus and too familiar that we don't get him, we also miss the Pharisees. I think we think of them as music hall villains with little moustaches that they twiddle, wearing black hats and kind of plotting to kill Jesus at every turn. We assume that they are the bad guys. We just assume that they are evil because we know how the kind of thing turns out. Whereas Jesus is just kind of walking around minding his own business and they're picking on him. Well, actually, Jesus wasn't minding his own business. He was minding what the Pharisees thought was their business. He was making a pitch for what they felt was their territory. We have to remember that the nation of Israel was a nation of high expectations and great disappointments. History had not turned out the way they had wanted it to. They were the chosen people of God, the children of Abraham, to whom extraordinary promises had been made, especially the promise of life in God's land, under God's king. What they had instead was life under the heavy yoke of Roman rule. Life that was not really their own life. An identity that wasn't really their own identity. Their great temple, the magnificent icon, the Patronus towers of their city had been torn down and rebuilt. And the rebuilding wasn't so great. Wasn't really all that. And now they lived under the hand of the Roman emperor the Roman emperor why because as the prophets told them their idolatry and their corruption and their immorality and their faithlessness had led them to be overrun by foreign armies 6 centuries before and they never had got their independence back and it was impossible not to read this as an ongoing judgment of God upon his people The Pharisees then stood up and said, we are deeply concerned that the people don't get it. The people should get ready for God. They should get their nation's house in order and be better at being Jewish, be better at being Israelite. And frankly, why wouldn't they? Don't you have some sympathy with the Pharisees? They're saying, come on, Israel, get your act together so that God can come and do his stuff. They could see how devastating the failure had been. And they wanted to get everyone back on track. 
Now, they had no official position in Israel. They weren't government bureaucrats or anything like that. They were the self-appointed guardians of everybody else's spiritual and moral lives. But after all, they had good motives. They wanted to hasten the day when God would return to rule his people, to rebuild his temple with great splendor in all its glory, and to rid them of the oppressive hand of foreign rule. And their strategy was this, not military insurrection, although we have military revolutionaries in Israel in that time. No, the Pharisees said, we're going to make sure that we all conform strictly to the law of God, to the nth degree. In fact, we're going to be obsessive compulsive about making sure we keep God's law. This was a movement for those with OCD. Certainly the Pharisees, right? We're going to not just tithe, we're going to tithe a tenth of our herbs. Everything that grows. We're not just going to keep the Sabbath. We're not going to do anything on the Sabbath. Not even remotely. So that there's every possible chance that God will return to his people to save them. So we can at least kind of nag God. Get God to show himself and do his stuff. Only Jesus was claiming that this was exactly what had happened in him. He was saying the promised kingdom of God has now come. With me, the day has arrived. So all eyes were on him to see how he would behave as a prophet, making big, even arrogant, perhaps, sounding claims. Now that's a lot of introduction, if you like, to prepare us for today's set of texts. But this is the thread that connects them all. The thread that is the tension, the standoff between the Pharisees and Jesus as they come to blows here in this set of texts, this set of four little group, a group of four little stories that we have in front of us. And so to plunge into the first one of these, the story of Levi, the tax collector from verse 27 of chapter 5. And it, it comes because of who Jesus eats with. It comes because Jesus eats with people in an offensive way. His collection of dinner party guests is an offensive one. In verse 27, it's quite a simple tale, isn't it? He just waltzes up to this guy called Levi. And as he called his disciples, so he called Levi. Come and follow me. And sure enough, it's instantaneous in the story, isn't it? Levi, the tax collector, leaves his booth and follows Jesus. Now, of course... A tax collector is not only a nasty person because he collects taxes off everybody. A tax collector is a collaborator with the Romans. A tax collector is the opposite of a patriot. Tax collectors were, as far as the Pharisees were concerned, part of the problem, not part of the solutions. They were a jerk and doubly a jerk, corrupt and a collaborator at the same time. And then what happens when this man is converted, when this man comes after Jesus, when he's a follower of Jesus? He throws a party for him with all his tax-collecting mates and sinners. That's all we know. We can imagine what kind of people they were, the kind of people that were outcasts that would hang around with tax collectors. You can imagine what that must have been. And suspicion comes upon Jesus. Why do you drink with tax collectors and sinners? It's a fair enough question. There's nothing we like better in the city than I come from, Sydney, than a photograph in the newspaper of a famous person, hopefully a judge or a politician, with what we call in the local, uh, the local, uh, the local parlance, the local slang, a colourful Sydney identity. And colourful means 
that they usually own a strip club or um, something like that, you know, or they're a, a convicted drug dealer or something like that. And uh, nobody ever says when that happens, which it does from time to time, you know, that guy must be mending his ways to be seen with the judge. You know, isn't it great that he's now, instead of hanging out with the sort of low lives he normally hangs out with, he's now hanging out with that politician. That politician's going to have a great influence on him and he's going to head the straight and narrow. That's not how it works, is it? The taint usually flows the other way. We're scandalised that this person is hanging out with such a, an evil person, such a corrupt and immoral person. My good friend uh, Al uh, became a bishop in the Diocese of Sydney, where I am, um, he doesn't serve as one any longer, but not because of this story, I hasten to say. And uh, Al is a bishop with muscles. Uh, he actually used to work out down at the gym, and he, had, uh, he has big muscles, and he used to kind of go uh, working out with this guy. He was his personal trainer, John. And John would take him down to the gym, and they'd meet at 6 o'clock in the morning, and they'd, they'd do their workout, and then Al would get on with his day. Uh, well, after a couple of years of doing this, John was uh, actually arrested and uh, it turned out he'd been pushing drugs the entire time. Uh, he was actually not really a very nice man and poor old Al uh, had had his phone tapped by the police because all this time he'd been calling up John and saying, uh, John, do you want to get together for a workout tomorrow? Right? Whereas the next phone call would come in and say, John, can I have some ice or speed, please? Right? Poor old Al, right? Nobody thought, you know... Maybe John's not a criminal because he's hanging out with Al. Everyone thought, my goodness, why is Al hanging out with this drug dealer? As it turns out, there's nothing untoward. I just want to, in case this is being taped, nothing untoward about my friend's connection, my friend Al's connection with this guy, John. But you can see the taint. There's a question to be asked here. If you hang out with the wrong people, which way is the influence flowing? To eat together is more than just the sharing of food. You would think that the Pharisees might be happy to see that Jesus had told the tax collectors to clean their acts up and become more devout in their service of God. But I don't think that was their problem here. Their problem was that Jesus was saying, I've bypassed those who think they know the best for Israel. I haven't come to endorse you, the righteous ones. I've come to bring hope to those who seem to have no hope because no one is telling them that they're righteous. And what matters is not whether you conform to the Pharisees' interpretation of the law. What matters is whether you sit down with me. What matters is whether you recognize who I am. And that's what Levi, this tax collector, has done. If you do sit down with me, make no mistake, I'm not simply going to tell you everything is all right when it isn't. As Jesus puts it, those who have, are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... I have, no, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And if Levi had been overhearing it, he would have said, what are you saying, I'm sick? Right? And yes, Jesus is saying, yes, you're not righteous. You need help. You need my help. At least you've recognized it, though. At least you've recognized that in me, the kingdom of God has coming. And here's the thing. Jesus has come for a serious purpose because people are in a serious mess. And his presence among us, not just amongst Israel, but amongst us, is a terrible indictment on us because it says to us, 
and not only to Israel, but all, to all humanity. It says, all that time God sent warnings to us about the way we are, about the brokenness of ourselves, about the way we've treated each other, about the way we treat the planet, about the way we ignore God. The way, the, 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 all those years the prophets have come and said exactly this, and we've done nothing about it. The prophets had not been able to change Israel's errant ways. The terrible judgment of the exile exile remained hanging over them because they had not yet made peace with God. And for the Pharisees and the scribes, this was as good as saying, your whole project is pointless. You think you are going to save people, but the problem is far deeper than you thought. We are much further gone than ever you imagined. We are sick, and Jesus is here. He's a doctor. We need the doctor because things are not good with us. And this is also the message of the second little conflict of our passage today, the interaction over fasting that occurred. The Pharisees again complain that the disciples of Jesus don't fast. At least Jesus' good friend and cousin, John the Baptist, his disciples fasted. They showed that they were pretty serious about Judaism, about God, by withholding food. They showed that they were grieving for Israel's terrible state because they were going without food. Fasting was a sign of mourning, especially a fasting was a sign of mourning for the condition of the nation, returned from its exile but as yet still good as as is in exile. But Jesus says, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Then as now. A wedding is a feast. And when the feast is on, you gorge yourself. I presume Malaysians have special uh, times when... I mean, I, I've eat, never eaten so much as when I come to Malaysia, I have to say. So, but I presume that there are weddings where you eat even more. Is that true? Yes. Right? We can't fast when the wedding's on. Again, this is a huge statement about the significance of his own ministry. He is the bridegroom, the great royal prince of Israel, now here to deliver his people. He's here. This is not now a time for sorrow and mourning since the age of the exile is finished. The time has come. The Messiah, the one sent by God, is now here. And that's what the strange little parable about the wineskins and the new cloth backs uh, does to back this up. Newness is the theme there in those in those verses, isn't it? The idea that there is a if you put a new piece of cloth on an old garment, that's just not going to work. It's not first of all aesthetically, it's a bit silly, but also it's going to tear. And also, you're destroying the new garment that you took the new piece from. It doesn't work. Likewise, if you put new wine into old wine skins, you'll destroy the old wine skin because it'll burst, and then you'll have lost both. It just doesn't work. Now the new has come. The old must pass. The old is obsolete. You can't play a vinyl record. By the way, if you're under 30, in the old days we used to have these kind of plastic things. Uh, made Sometimes they were made of sort of shellac and they'd have a groove on them. Hence the word groovy. 
and uh, music would come out of speakers, right? And I had a collection of all of them, right? Of uh, 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 an, an ama- amazing collection of records, we called them, before the CD player came in. And actually, I never bought a record player, and so I just had these things, and so I chucked them out because they were obsolete. There was no point. And now even I'm kind of getting sick of CDs because they make such a mess because of MP3 CDs have become obsolete, my wife bought us for Christmas as a kind of gift for us. She bought the ser- first series of Waking the Dead. And uh, I got it out of the box and I put it in the DVD player and nothing happened. And I thought, hang on a minute, this is, uh, this is a bit strange. The DVD player was working before, but I took it out, put it in my computer and nothing happened. Then I looked more closely at the box. It was a Blu-ray. What is this thing, Blu-ray? It's just made my DVD player obsolete. I now have to go and buy a Blu-ray player, which is exactly what they want, of course, uh, so that I can make it match the Waking the Dead CDs, which I still haven't done. You see, here's a pretty strong word, isn't it, for the Pharisees. The new has come. You cannot keep carrying on with the old way anymore. The old way of the Pharisees has no place. It has no relevance. It has no traction on life. It's pointless. It's pointless to keep looking for God's coming if he's still here. Your way of preparing for God's coming, says Jesus, is pointless. I'm here now among you. And in verse 39, he seems to be saying there, you've become addicted to the old way. You're kind of so used to it that you can't see what the new way is like. You can't see how good the new wine is. Now I am here, says Jesus. There's a need for a whole new operating system, in fact. And that is, again, all about Jesus himself. He's here not to compliment you. He's not here to endorse you. He's not here to give you a bit of homespun wisdom. He's here to bring the day of the Lord's salvation. He's here to do something dramatic. He's here to change history itself, which is bad news because it means we're in more trouble than ever we thought. We need more than a moral teacher. We need someone who's going to change everything. And that's what we have. But that's also good news because it means the rescue has arrived. The bridegroom is here. It's time for celebrating, not for fasting. This is not just another one in the line of prophets. The day of the Lord they spoke about has come. And that's why the two stories about the Sabbath then follow. The two stories about that great festival in the Jewish week, the Saturday, the Sabbath, the day of rest. And for the Pharisees, the Sabbath had become not just a day of rest so that you could go and play volleyball at the beach or catch up on your shopping. That's how we kind of in consumerist society think of days of rest. But for them, it was another chance to look for the day of the, 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 day of the Lord, the coming day of the Lord. Remember from our first reading from Isaiah 56 there, the Sabbath was a reminder to keep justice and to do righteousness ahead of the coming day of the Lord's salvation. Now Jesus is accused in both of these stories of endorsing breaking of the Sabbath. In the first, that his disciples broke the Sabbath. In the second, that he broke the Sabbath law himself, allowing his disciples to collect grain and healing the man with the withered hand. Could this be really resting doing these two things? And this caused great offense to the Pharisees because they thought that Jesus was showing no regard to the law at all, to the kind of thing that would have been said in Isaiah chapter 56. It's worth saying that Jesus has got them over a barrel here because he's a much better reader of the Bible than they are. 
may not surprise you to learn. Keeping the Sabbath is not about outward and strict observance of a policy of doing no work. That misses the point entirely. You have to understand rest in the sense that God spoke about rest in the Old Testament. Rest means God's fellowship with his creation. It means his peace, his shalom, the great word that Jews still use to greet one another. His justice and his righteousness combined and his delight in the creation combined and in his people. It's a day for reconciliation and healing. And the Sabbath celebrated each week was a weekly pointer to the time when God's kingdom would finally be revealed in all its finality, all its totality, all its beauty and delight, all its deep justice and righteousness and reconciliation. As Isaiah puts it so eloquently on page after page of his book. But Jesus' answers to the Pharisees take it even further than that. In verses 3 to 5, he makes a direct comparison between himself and King David. I don't think it's a mistake, this biblical allusion, does it? He says, you know, David, back in the old days, David was quite happy to break what was supposed to be a ceremonial law when hunger demanded it. He was quite happy with that. He ate the sacred bread because he and his men were hungry. Likewise, I now proclaim myself, says Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath. Well, that's a strong statement for anyone to make, isn't it? I'm, I'm, would you buy it if I came in and said I was king of Sunday? What, what a thing to say. But he says here, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath because I stand in King David's line like King David. I can see what into the heart of this idea of the Sabbath. And to eat on the Sabbath, of course, is not breaking the Sabbath. In fact, it is indeed recognizing what God does on the Sabbath. But Jesus' answers to the Pharisees about the Sabbath take it even further than that. Um, oh, sorry, I repeat paragraph. Whoops. You shouldn't miss how grand a claim it, this is. He's not saying, hey, I can just do whatever I want because I'm kind of bigger than you. He's saying, I'm the longed-for son of David, the king himself, the one in whom the Sabbath finds its meaning. Sabbath has come to you. Now I'm going to show you that this is so by healing someone on the Sabbath day. What is better to do on the Sabbath day, evil or good? Well, of course the answer must be to do good. Would God not want the kind of healing that he does to happen on his special day? Well, of course he would. In fact, that healing is a sign of the kind of day that it is. What has occurred then is that God's peace has entered into the midst of the people, has entered into the time, into the first century, into their time. It's now arrived in full color, in 3D, in your presence, says Jesus. And it's about the heart of God's restoration of all things. About the creation being a place where there are no longer withered hands. There are no longer people who can't walk. There are no longer people who mourn for their sins. It's about the beginning of hope. And the people of God are being renewed and rebuilt. Not just because of the pickiness of the Pharisees, because they've kind of shaped up and everyone now wears a tie. But because Jesus has arrived and is now among the people, 
And he calls them to repentance from sin and to gather around him. And that's what happens in the next passage. I'm going to trespass into the next little bit of the story because it's a very strange moment when Jesus just seems to be gathering a bunch of friends together and we get their names, but he appoints specifically 12 apostles. And 12 is one of those biblical numbers. Whenever you see the number 12, you immediately think of the 12 tribes of Israel. You immediately think that's the number that indicates the people of God, the people of God from ancient times. And the message is pretty clear here. The day of the Lord's favor is here. The doctor has come to heal the sick patient. The Lord of the Sabbath himself has arrived to feed and to heal. The bridegroom is at the wedding. The wedding's on. You should be eating. The new wine has come. And so there's a whole new way of doing things. And so there needs to be a whole new wineskin to match. And so here I appoint my 12 apostles. There's a new people of God being instituted, being constituted in front of you. God has not forgotten his disappointed and despairing people because he's come to save them in an extraordinary way. He's come to rebuild them. And that means that the Pharisees have been put out of business. No wonder they're annoyed. They've lost their monopoly from this hostile takeover bid from Jesus. It will no longer be the law and the temple and Jerusalem, but Jesus, who will be the focus of God's relationship to the people of Israel. He is to be the king at the center of God's new people. Jesus came because, the plight of, because of the plight of Israel, and indeed because of the whole human race, because it was desperate, and, because he, and, and he came to start a new way to be the people of God with himself at the center as the king. Okay, what does that mean for us? In faraway Malaysia, on a Sunday morning some 2,000 years later, with nary a Jewish person among us? Well, of course, this fact of us meeting here together this morning is part of the story. It's part of the remarkable story of Jesus since his new people of God, his wonderful kingdom, included not only people who are tax collectors, but people who are not racially Jewish. It included people who are not Israelites. It was a message of the kingdom of God, but it was not a narrow message. It was a message for not just one race. It was inclusive of other races and tribes and peoples and tongues. It wasn't just local in scope. It was a message of peace with God that was for the ends of the earth. The Pharisees, by contrast, look petty and parochial. They've got no vision. Their vision is just for restored Israel. Forget that. Jesus' vision is for the whole world, for people from everywhere to be in God's kingdom. And their method of pursuing holiness was really about propping up their exclusive little club. We gather today, we gather here today as a sign that the new wine is filling new wineskins. The story of Israel was not, as the Pharisees thought, just for them. It was a story about Israel for the blessing of the whole world. And that for us here today is a powerful message. It tells us, On the one hand, that no one is beyond the reach of the God of Jesus Christ. Not one person is beyond that reach. Because belonging to God is not a matter of moral uprightness or belonging to a particular tribe or ethnicity. 
It is not about a little ethnic club. It's not about an exclusive group. If that was the message for the Jews, then how much more is that a message for the rest of us? The Sabbath rest of God is not just for Israel, but also for all the nations who will come in and share his peace as we do this morning. What a miracle that is. And that means for us, we have even less basis for the narrow tribalism that the Pharisees had. We have, we have even less excuse for it than they did. If the gospel is for tax collectors and for sinners, if it's for Australians for heaven's sake, and if it is for Gentiles and for Jews, then what business have we got in putting up barriers that will keep other people away? The new people of God, we gather here today on the basis only of our common need as sick sinners coming here to the hospital to meet the doctor. And in that doctor, in that physician, we find ourselves bizarrely and weirdly united as one in Jesus Christ. Just a couple of days ago, I went to lunch Two Englishmen, an American, an Australian, an Iranian, and a Malaysian. It sounded like a bad joke. But that's, that's the people of God, isn't it? That means, you know, that the church sometimes has in it, in fact, actually always has in it, if you're doing it right, people that you don't like. It has in it people that you have apparently nothing in common with. People who you look at them and you say, I don't see myself in them at all. I don't see how I connect with them. There are people who will be differently aged. There are people who will be differently gendered. There will be people who have different ideas of personal hygiene. There will be people who have different tastes in music, which is probably the thing that divides people more than anything else, isn't it? And the challenge here is, can you cope with that? Since that is the heart of why Jesus is so annoying to the Pharisees. If you're on Jesus' side in the argument, you will learn to cope with that. Can you cope in, with a church in which you find people who are not like you? But if anything, the really key thing is how you react to Jesus is decisive. If Jesus were an ordinary human being, then he indeed would be not a little arrogant and my friend would be exactly right in her reaction. He's a little bit full of himself, isn't he? The Sabbath, I, the Sabbath, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. What's that? I'm the physician. We are hearing from Jesus that he is the center of God's mission of rescue to the dying world. The man sent from God has landed on the ground. Now, how are you going to respond to him? The Pharisees give us one kind of response. They are irritated, they are annoyed, they are threatened. And in the end, they put him to death. They've become defensive and self-justifying. They'll want to kill Jesus in the end because they so much want to keep hold of their vision of what serving God should look like, their human-invented vision of what it should look like. They want the right to determine how to serve God and how others should serve God. And they won't accept the alternative because it threatens their pride, especially their pride in their tribe, in that feeling of us that we human beings so like. But there's other ways to respond to Jesus. There's one in particular 
It's the way in which Levi, that virtually unknown tax collector, responded. We don't learn a lot about him here. All we know is that he somehow saw in Jesus the best hope he'd ever known. Jesus was telling him that tax collecting was a ma- was not telling him that tax collecting was a matter of moral indifference, but he was telling him, "Here is your chance to be part of God's new world. Here in me, God's new day has dawned. And even when they put me to death, I will show you that I'm not being arrogant or presumptuous because I will rise from the dead because I am God's own son. Follow me. And that's what Levi did. And what did it mean for him? It didn't mean getting more strict about the law, notice. It meant an enormous party. As it would for another tax collector, Zacchaeus, later on. And that's the right way to be, simply welcoming Jesus with open arms and with joy because in him God shows that he has not left the world to its misery and alienation but has entered into it and that he has begun the work of setting up his marvellous kingdom where his peace will reign forevermore. And that is certainly worth throwing a party for. Let's pray. Our Lord and loving Heavenly Father, we, we pray that we sometimes would be irritated by what we see when we encounter Jesus, that Jesus would remain a challenge to us in our presumption, that we would remember always that it is not through our tribal identity or through our performance of moral laws that we become right with God, but that is through our response to your Son. Show us the glory of your Son evermore as we study your word, as we meet together. And Father, help us as we meet together to, to cope with that new kingdom that you've established, to understand that the essential difference of others that you've brought together, to understand that If you meet together as a forgiven people, there can be no tribalism. There can be no exclusion. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.